I don't know if they got the new, there's a new slide. I uploaded a new slide deck. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. It's okay. So good morning, everyone. Um, I'm up here, and there will be a slide soon. Uh, it's last okay. minute change. <laughs> um, I'm up here. I'm Tara Sai. I'm a part of our adopt a classroom team uh, with Dearborn Park Elementary across the street. Um, and we've kind of discussed this to the CGs, but we haven't discussed this um, as a whole church in general. And so I wanted to come and kind of kick off our um, work that we're doing with the adopt a classroom teams. And so um, what we're doing specifically is that we have a sushi list, is what we're calling it, of items that teachers need. Um, and a lot of the times the PTA um, can't afford to get all of the items that teachers need every single year, and so the teachers have to go into their own pockets and um, buy all these um, items for themselves. Um, so what we're doing is we're adopting a classroom, and um, each of the CGs or group of people or fellowship or whoever you may be um, is going to adopt a teacher and um, uh, volunteer to um, buy those items that they requested uh, for their school year. And so um, number one up on the top left there is that they filled out their sushi list and uh, they have a bunch of requested items that um, you can adopt that teacher for. Um, and then the second step is that once a CG or group of people selects a teacher, uh, they will be able to buy all those items on Amazon. And uh, what we're asking each of the groups is that if they can contribute up to $200, that would be excellent. And then the rest can be um, facilitated by the Elevate Humanity Fund. So if they have some really expensive items on there, like a new printer, I think maybe one of the teachers might have needed that this year, um, then the Elevate Humanity Fund can help. So it's not like it's all on your CG if there's some really large items in their sushi list. Um, and then the CGs are supposed to purchase those supplies and send them to the church. And then we are going to gather them together and in April have a dinner with all of the teachers and present them um, all of their items for uh, their school supplies. And um, the other um, main thing that we want to try and do with this is that we want to partner with the teachers and kind of have some relationships with them. And so each CG will be responsible for that teacher and we're wanting to check up on them and say, hey, is there anything we can help with? Is there anything we can volunteer with? If there are people that have time to volunteer at the school during the day, um, it's a wonderful opportunity. I actually volunteered there this past week for um, the book fair that SCAC donated a free book for each of the kids and they were so excited and they were all just clamoring about their free books. So it's, it's a really fun time if you're able to donate even more than just um, your money and these supplies, if you can get involved with the teachers one-on-one -on -one, um, and create that relational um, ability between us and Dearborn Park. Um, yeah, and that was number six. Um, the leader of our team is Stacy Chan. So if you have any additional information that you um, want, you can contact her or me, um, Annette, Ed Seed, and Yolanda Eng. So that is our team. So, and if you have any questions, I'll stand out there after church and you can come find me. So I hope you'll be a part of this. Thank you.
Amen. Amen. Daniel, you playing on the yeah, keys already? Oh, no, no, you don't have to play now. I'm just saying, that, just recognize that you are playing on the keys and you're relatively new to church and praise God. He's already got, gotten started serving. So, man, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's really good. Really good. Um, good morning, church, and uh, just good to see you all today. Uh, we had the honor of celebrating Wallace, Uncle Wallace's 80th birthday yesterday, so praise God for Uncle Wallace. So cool. And, uh, you know, this past week also Uncle Raymond, uh, you know, passed away, and so today at 4 o'clock we'll be having a service uh, to honor his, his well-lived, well-lived life. Um, so it's going to be a really good uh, time to honor him. Um, we are in Romans chapter 13, so you can, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> and um, just confession here that uh, when it comes to politics, and we're going to be talking politics today, um, for most of my life I've been neutral about politics, meaning, you know, you don't care, didn't really care, didn't vote for a long time, just didn't vote, and, you know, I have no shame in that, you know, because if you're neutral about it and don't care, then there's no shame in not voting, okay? So I, I just didn't really care. I didn't vote. Um, and um, I would say in the past maybe 10 years where my feelings about politics have shifted is um, 10, one, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being you're really, you know, passionate about politics and you really follow and you really care about what's going on. Five is neutral. One would be hate really disdain politics. I think in the last 10 years, I've shifted from neutral to hate, right? I really do not like politics. And the reason I think that um, I, I, I don't like politics, and a lot of people in our country, uh, they'll talk about corruption, they'll talk about abuse of power, uh, votes being sold to the highest lobbyists, hypocrisy, whatever it might be. But it, my, for me, the reason I really dislike politics is because of how politics, isn't so much about how politics warp the politician, it's about how it warps us, how politics warp us. I mean, I'm talking about people in the church. I'm just saying it's always been odd to me, strange to me, how two Christians, they're saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but once they find out one person is, leans red and the other person leans blue, they won't speak to each other. They'll avoid each other. In fact, they'll begin to question each other's salvation. I mean, you really believe in God? You know, just depending on their political party. I think it's really odd because I've tasted and I've seen, and there's a lot of, I think a lot of the Christians too, Scripture confirms, right, that the blood of Jesus Christ breaks every chain and tears down every wall that divides. And if God is the God that can unite Jew and Gentile and slave and, and free and barbarian, Scythians, all, all those together, male and female, can't God somehow unite red and blue? By the way, red and blue make purple. Purple's the color of, not UW, okay, but purple's the color of you divinity, of divinity. But for too many Christians, what I see is that we follow the pattern of this world, and Christian theology is trumped by political ideology. I did not, there's no tongue in cheek in that, okay? You just can't avoid it, all right? Christian theology is trumped by political ideology. No tongue in cheek. I'm just saying that for too many Christians, what I'm seeing is that the way you view the world, the way that you do your politics, the way you see so many things, the way you interact with other people and the way we interact with society 
is less and less by Christian theology, but actually your political ideology. And there's a real problem with that as a church, and there's a real danger in that. So, uh, I just let you know that when it comes to this, the verses that we're going to read today, you know, when I came back from sabbatical and I was thinking about which book of the Bible we're going to go through, I definitely was drawn to Romans, wanted to do that. I'm glad we're in it. But as I was reading through Romans, and you get through these amazing verses, you know, uh, chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 12, when I got to chapter 13, it was difficult. When I read the verse in chapter 3, I've read it before, but because of certain feelings, I was like, this is probably my least favorite passage in all of Scripture. Can a pastor say that? Okay, can I be vulnerable? This is my least, can I have a least favorite passage in Scripture? This would be it. These would be the verses, okay? So we're going to go through them. Um, Chapter 13, verses, uh, uh, starting at verse 1. And again, we have to take these a little bit in context, and I'll talk a little bit of context later, but Paul is applying our new life in Christ. Remember Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2 is the hinge verse. Everything points uh, to 1 through 12, and then from 1 through 12 is the overflow of life. And so Paul is going to talk about how we apply this new life in Christ as it relates to the government. Because for all generations and all centuries, whenever there has been a government, whenever there has been a government, people have always questioned authority. People have always had some issues with the government. So this is what Paul says. He says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Think about that. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now you Getting it, like why this is a hard passage to swallow, okay? Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, okay? Now, look, if you're reading this passage and we take taking this correctly, are you, wait, are you saying that God is responsible for Barack Obama? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying God's responsible for Hitler? Wait a minute, are you saying God is responsible for Donald Trump? God, you know, are God, is, is, God, does, does God, is God red or is, is he blue, right? So if you think that God is a Republican or you think that God is a Democrat, then God seems to change his mind every four to eight years, right? Now, because, you have to think of it, because if God is the establisher of authority, rulers, then you can't say this. You can't do this. You can't say when a Republican is in office, you can't say, okay, this is God's man because he's a Republican. But then when that person who's in office is a Democrat, you can't say that person's the Antichrist. Does that make sense? You can't have it both ways. If God is the establisher of authority, then you can't say just because this person's a Republican or that, you know, that's God's person. If he's a Democrat, that's the Antichrist. Can't have it both ways. But there are some Christian leaders, and I'm, I was thinking about, should I name these people? And I'm not going to name any names. I don't, I don't normally do that. Because I think somehow in some way, these, a lot of, some of these Christian leaders and pastors, they, they mean well. But they are really breeding a lot of confusion. That's what I see into the body of Christ. Um, there's a specific, there, there's a pastor in Dallas, and he, he uh, 
said uh, that Trump has the authority by God to press the nuclear button on North Korea. Now, he said that, and he backed that up with Romans chapter 13, these verses right here. He did that, stated that, that publicly. But when Barack Obama was in office, this same pastor said that he was paving the way for the Antichrist. Okay, so, so wait a minute. So who's in control? Is God in control or Satan in control? Do you understand that? You can't have it both ways. Paul goes on to say, verse 3, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for you. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Wow. Okay, so we're just gonna we're gonna go through this. First point, number one, on your outline. God <clears throat> has an extremely high view of government. You read these passages, that's the first thing that's gonna come out. God has an extremely high view. <clears throat> Of government. God is very into government. Why? Because God Himself is a governing authority. He is the governing authority. And the government, according to Scripture, the government is supposed to be a gift. The government is supposed to be beneficial to a culture, to a society, to a country, wherever that government exists. It's supposed to be a force of good. Therefore, those who are in the highest authority on earth, which is our government, God wants us to say that still they are accountable to the highest authority in heaven just like the rest of us. So that's a good thing. So already this is challenging for me and maybe for those of you who have never been political, who have, as I've confessed, I've been very dismissive of politics and politicians, that God actually himself, he has a very high view of government, is very interested in the authority and the execution, the, the giving of authority in government. Second point, number two, God has a limited view on the role of government. God has a limited view on the role of government. Now, what does that mean? Before you start accusing me of that language, Kate, of being a Republican, all right, you, you have no idea who I voted for, all right? I, when I talk about politics, I get surprise reactions from both left and right, okay? But let me try to explain to you what I mean by God's limited view on the role of government. What Paul is doing in these passages is he's laying down the brace, the, a, a very basic core principle of how governments need to operate. He's only laying down a basic core principle of how governments operate, not the specifics, Okay, so Paul's leading that. So these verses aren't stating how the government currently is, but these verses are giving a very specific principle, a very specific vision for the basic function of government, which is this. The government should be doing this. Whatever government it is, they probably have a basic function of this. Protect those who do good. Protect those who do good and punish those who do wrong. Okay, even if you're like in communist China, and you're saying communism is all bad. But if you're in China, 
right? One of the basic functions that they still do is that, hey, if you break the law, like, you'll be punished. But if you're doing okay, you're good. I mean, the people in China probably feel that as well, okay, on a very basic level. Don't steal. Don't murder. These basic things, like, yeah, I'm glad we have laws like that in China, okay? So at its very basic, a government should be doing this. Protect those who do good. Punish those who do wrong. In other words, I summarize it like this. The government should be pursuing truth and justice. At its core principle, government should be pursuing truth and justice. Truth of what is good and true. Um, and when people don't, there should be some commensurate justice. Verse 3 and 4, those are the verses that tell you that Paul is talking about a generality, not something very specific, particularly to Rome. Okay? This is what he says, verse 3 and 4. He says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in, God's, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. And you would say, all of us would say, Paul, what are you talking about? That, that's not our world. That, that's not the kind of government we have. That's not the world that we live in. Because, you know, if there's anything that's been bought to, to greater light in the past maybe five years especially, we talk about a lot about racial bias, prejudice in our criminal justice system. A lot of you, I have African-American pastor friends. A lot of you have African-American friends too. They do right. They're good citizens, right? But they're terrified by a traffic stop in the Rainier Valley, right? In fact, we already know six years ago, the Seattle Police Department, um, <clears throat> the federal government stepped in. The Department of Justice had to step in and had court-ordered sweeping reforms of the Seattle uh, Police Department because they found the officers too often used excessive force, so they found in many cases that those who were given authority to, to protect were actually doing the opposite and abusing that power. So here's the thing. So you read that and you say, so Paul, how can you say that rulers hold no terror for those who do right? Because that's just not our world. Yeah, that's, that's just the United States. But, but uh, there's other places in the world where people are doing right are being persecuted, right? And Paul would respond, I know. And Paul would say, I know, that's not first century either. One of the things that's interesting is that um, in Acts chapter 18 is when Paul first meets Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila, they were Jews. And during that time, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews and Christians out of Rome. They weren't doing anything, quote, unquote, wrong. But there was persecution, and they expelled it. And so it's in this context that Paul gives these words that, hey, if you're doing right, you don't have to worry about the authorities. But that wasn't even going on in Paul's time. So that's why Paul, you have to understand, is giving the vision of the limited, of a core role of what the government should be doing. He's not trying to, Paul's not trying to create a specific political ideology. That's what you need to know. He is not trying to create a specific political grand ideology for every country on the planet. You could be communist, you could be capitalist, you could be socialist, but what Paul is saying is that every government in its most ba basic form should, ought to, protect those who do good and punish those who do wrong. Those are the limited specifics that the Bible teaches. Anything beyond that should be guided by the principles 
of truth and justice. There is no other political ideology. There's no red line or a blue line that rides, that goes through Scripture. Just a very high view of governance with the inviting principles of truth and justice. So point three is that followers of Christ must be led by truth and justice, not a political ideology. Followers of Christ must be led by truth and justice, not political ideology. This is important. For some believers, for some believers, your lens of government, how you vote, how you see the world, is shaped by your political ideology. It's shaped by what, what you identify yourself with as a Republican or Democrat. You see the world through a political lens. And if you see a world, the world through a political lens, you will see neither truth nor justice. Let me say that one more time because this is really important. If you see the world and you, you choose to interact with the world through a political lens, through a red or blue lens, like that's your main thing, and you're, you're constantly towing the line, you will neither see truth nor justice. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why. You know, even though I'm anti-politics, right? Uh, let me guys know, I worked for the federal government for 10 years, okay? So I worked as an uh, electrical engineer for the Naval Surface Warfare Center for about four years. I worked for the, cell, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency for about another four years. And what's been really interesting is this, this talk about... Um, uh, Trump now uh, possibly having a meeting with North Korean leaders, which I think is pretty amazing. I mean, I hope something really good comes out of that. Uh, it, at the CIA, I worked for this office called, it was called the Office of Transnational Issues. And what we did in the Office of Transnational Issues is we, we, we spied, okay, <laughs> we spied on North Korea, actually. North Korea is one of the countries we spied on. And so what we did was that whenever there was a missile launch, that North Korea, when they are testing their missiles, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everything North Korea did was like, ooh, it's like fireworks, okay? That's, that's how their missile program went, right? And so what our office did was that we had satellites that were pointed in, to North Korea and taking telemetry signals. So whenever there's a test launch, the, the missile, whatever they're bringing up, has a lot of these signals they're broadcasting. And then so I'm part of the team. I'm the computer guy. I'm the guy in the chair. You know, Spider-Man, the guy in the chair. I'm the guy in the chair collecting the data. Then I give the data and help them massage that data and give it to the analyst. The analyst then tries to say, okay, what are these signals saying? What are they telling us about their capability? Like how advanced uh, did the, did the, was the missile launch successful for them and things like that? Okay, that's what we did. Now, uh, and, and so what we did is we took what's called raw intelligence. Raw intelligence would be like the signals and data that you collected. And then we would go through a process of kind of processing that, of kind of figuring out what does that mean. We look at the history of North Korea, look at the history of telemetry, history of data that we have, history of intelligence, and that the analyst would then write a report called finished intelligence. And the finished intelligence would be kind of like a subjective truth. You have facts, but where are all these facts leading to? Okay? So wrap your head around this. Let's say you have an analyst who is a deeply conservative, ultra-something Republican, okay? He's writing this report, and this particular analyst has a very uh, Republican, expansionist view 
through militaristic, you know, conquest. Let's say he has that. That's just part of his ideology. And he's the one writing that report. And whether he knows it or not, he begins to kind of subtly, uh, subtly weave that narrative into the data and the report that he's finding. Because once this report is written, and let's say he's writing a report called, you know, um, the nuclear capability of North Korea. Let's say he's, he's write that. You know, the, the threat assessment for North Korea, their ballistic, effectiveness of their ballistic program. Let's say he's writing that report. But he has this particular bent in the way that he sees the world. And so whether he knows it or not, he begins to subtly weave that ideology into his finished intelligence. That report goes to the president. That report goes to your senators. And he's like, they read that. And so the conclusion as they read, as the leaders read this, like, I think, I don't know. I'm just feeling, he's not saying it, but I feel like we need a preemptive strike on North Korea. Right? That could happen. What if you had an analyst, same data, same data, same facts, not alternative facts. These are the same facts. Okay, they all got the same facts, same data. But this analyst, their ideology is they're a bleeding, liberal, pacifist Democrat. And as they're looking at the data, and because of their particular ideology, the way they see the world, is that they're subtly, whether they know or not, they're weaving this pacifist narrative into the finished intelligence report. Like, yeah, they have this capability, they look at, but they might come to the conclusion that it's not something that the U.S. really needs to pay attention to. We, we should take a non-aggressive type stance towards North Korea. You get that? Do you see how that begins to color? Do you understand how political ideology and trying to deal with facts and interpret facts can be really dangerous for anyone, for a country, for analysts in this work. That's why in our first month at the CIA, you know, it was about four weeks of training. The last week, <clears throat> the last week, before they send you off, you know, they spend the last week on this one topic called politicization. Next slide. Politiciz I always, politicization, okay? All right. <laughs> to politicize something. I'll shorten it because it's like, that's like six syllables and it's just way too much for me. Um, Okay, to politicize something is the action of causing an activity or event or fact to become political in character. So you're taking a fact of something that's not political, it's just a fact. But instead, you take that fact and you insert it into something, into a particular framework that colors it, that makes it a political hot topic. And what we do at the CIA is that their last, that last week is they teach us how not to do that. Why? Because they told us in the CIA, all right, this is the, C this is the federal government telling you that if you bring your political ideolo ideology into your work as you evaluate the facts, that you will not end up with truth nor justice. This is your federal government training employees telling that if you bring your, if you bring your Republican or Democrat, whatever ideology, into your work, 
in the way that you interpret these facts, you will not come up. It does not lead to truth, and it will not lead to justice. Let me give you an example of, again, politicization, so you just kind of understand. It's kind of like this. Um, <clears throat> so let's take global warming, all right? Let's just say the fact is, is that the earth seems to be getting hotter, okay? Seems to be that's a fact. It's getting warmer. Now, because of that, <clears throat> for the first time ever, just saying, the first time ever at the history of church at SCAC, we're, so this is real. This is a real example. We're actually having discussions about purchasing an air conditioner for the sanctuary, okay? For that, like, one week where it's super hot, all right? Like, we're when, willing to spend, like, 60K, 100K. Do you want, is that good? Do we want to do that? I don't know. Yeah, everyone's like, mm. oh, Betty, take, you know, Betty, take note of that. Okay, so, but that's what we're thinking, okay? We've been talk, having discussions about that. Politicizing would be this, <clears throat> Politicized with this, that some person on the governing board, okay, some person on the governing board said, you know what, I don't believe in global warming, so don't you dare buy that air conditioner, okay? That would be politicizing, because what happens, you just hijacked a fact. You manipulated it to conform your political ideology to make a decision. I hope that makes sense. That's what it means to politicize something. And so in that last week, we just spend the whole time talking about the necessity of removing political ideology out of, it, out of intelligence gathering, or else you will never come to truth and you will not act in justice. This is your federal government training us that you cannot come to truth and justice through a political lens and ideology. That is truth. Amen to that. Because that's what the Bible's teaching. Truth and justice those ideas need to come first, not red or blue. And too many Christians have it backwards. And our country is suffering for that. If the federal government is training people that you cannot, is training and telling its own employees that it's both dishonest and unjust to be politically motivated and skewed by a red or blue ideology in their work, what does that speak to us as the church who have a deep connection to the truth, who have a deep connection to the idea of righteousness? It tells us the same thing. Don't be so locked into one ideology because you won't be able to see clearly and you won't be able to enact justice rightly. Clearly, we will be blind if a political ideology is your primary lens for seeing the world, if your political ideology, what you believe about gun control and immigration, social welfare, education, economy, business, if your thing is just to toe the line, you will not come to truth or justice. Now, <coughs> question, uh, objection is this. You'd say, well, how is Christianity any different, right? If you're trying to say, like, are you trying to say to come from a biblical lens? Yeah, I'm kind of trying to say that. I'm trying to figure out and trying to navigate through what Scripture is teaching. But isn't the Bible, isn't that just a third party that you're then introducing into this and making it more complex? And, and couldn't that, <coughs> excuse me, couldn't that ideology be just as misleading or broken? <clears throat> 
as a Republican view or a Democrat view. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I would say, good point. That's a great point. You're thinking. You're thinking. Now, this may not convince you, but at least this might be an interest to you. See, when Republicans and Democrats, when they talk about truth, they talk about facts. They're not talking about truth. There's a difference between truth and facts. When Republicans and Democrats, when they talk about truth, they talk about facts. When Christians talk about truth, the way that we're supposed to talk about truth is we're supposed to interact with the truth as a person and as a relationship. Jesus said he is the way and the truth and the life. Whenever the Bible talks about truth, the Bible doesn't talk about facts. The Bible talks about a relationship to the truth. That's the distinctive coming from a Christian vantage point. Let me just give an example. Let's take the, uh, the currently, right, United States, big gun control debate. Big gun control debate, right? <clears throat> and Republicans, if you told the line, Republicans have said this for decades and decades. They say this, guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? We've all heard that one, okay? Guns don't kill people. People kill people. That's a fact. And I would say, you know what? That sounds right. And I would agree to that basic fact. I would agree. Because if you've got an AR-15, fully automatic, you did your little whatever bump stock thing, right? It's sitting on a shelf. It's sitting at home. <clears throat> it can't kill anybody. It's completely safe. Right? It's completely harmless. That gun does not kill anyone if it's just sitting there. If it's pointed at some targets, some random targets, you know, whatever, inanimate targets, okay, then, you know, and you're shooting at it, it doesn't kill anyone. You're not killing one. Guns don't kill people. That's right. That's a fact, okay? So don't blame the gun, right? It's only if you point the gun at a person and shoot, right? But even if you're doing that, it's not the gun who kills the person. You killed the person. It's a person, okay? So the good facts, okay? So the Republican stance would be don't blame the gun. Don't limit my right to bear arms. Instead, give everyone a gun as a deterrent for people killing other people. That will be the deterrent, okay? Democrats, they have their facts too, okay? And they'll say, well, it's just guns. It's guns, it's guns, it's guns. So we need to have less guns, no automatic guns. Now, that's a fact too right, that guns are killing people, right, because people use guns to kill people. So guns are obviously part of the equation, at least, in mass shootings, okay? So these are the facts. But instead of parties coming to the truth of what to do with these particular facts, what they do is they act like two opposing parties, two opposing lawyers, and they're using the same facts to argue a case in their favor. And instead of coming to, of, uh, instead of a jury coming to a final verdict, see, that's what, the, that's what a jury does. A jury might hear the same facts, but people are using them in different ways. And the jury is supposed to find the truth of where these things are pointing. And our politicians should be helping us come to a truth of where these things are pointing, but they just keep on going back to the facts, just to 
promote their particular side. And so what happens is that we're kind of the jury, or, you know, or, or, or maybe some of the politicians, they, they, they're, they kind of try to act as the jury. And so what happens is that they, everyone brings their facts, but then we have a mistrial every year. Not that we never get anywhere. We never get past any good legislation. Every year is another mistrial. And then so maybe we'll try it another two years and another four years. Facts are presented again. You have different lawyers, different lawmakers, same arguments, but it always ends in a mistrial because we never get to the truth. All we deal with are facts. The difference for Christians is that we don't confuse truth with objective facts. We believe that truth is a person. We believe that God can lead us into the truth that we could be honest and more objective with the facts so that it can lead us to truth. Romans 12:1 again that verse, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. And very specifically in this age is do not be conformed to a to a Republican or Democrat or whatever party line. Do not toe the line but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying if we go to God with the truth, if we gather all of our facts and if we go to God with the truth, you may find yourself neither Republican or Democrat, you'll find yourself deeply concerned about issues and you're finding ways that Christians, their voices can be involved without being political, without being manipulative. And so a Christian should be diving into the facts at history, reads your Bible, prays to God, offering their lives as sacrifice to others, not a political ideology, and the Spirit then will lead you into truth. So point number four is that Christians need to be involved in politics but Christians shouldn't be political. Christians need to be involved in politics, but Christians shouldn't be political. And again, why, what I mean by that is that don't use, when I say don't be political, don't use the same devices that political parties use to, in order to um, sway people. They use fear. <clears throat> they use misinformation. They use manipulation. They use intimidation. Both parties. Both parties. They do all these things. Um, just, just recently, um, uh, Dr. Dr. Not Larry, Larry Nyland, he's the uh, superintendent of Seattle Public Schools, okay? And um, the board, the Seattle School Board, is, is forcing him out, kind of forcing him out, not renewing his contract. But what's kind of strange is that all the, the teachers' union and the principals' union, right, they all actually want him to stay, and they've actually written the Seattle Public School Board, which is a board that's elected, right? They actually wrote to the board and said, hold off what you're doing. Don't do a, don't, don't do a superintendent search and um, keep Dr. Nyland, okay? So, um, <clears throat> and I just thought that was really interesting. And I just thought that's a really bad thing when the Seattle, when the principals and teachers are against the board, like they're just, they're, they're going against one another, trying to hire a new leader, right? Just really weird. Anyway, so uh, one of the uh, Education Coalition leaders, they emailed me and said, Roy, you know, do you think, you know, you want to you write an email on behalf of maybe 
the churches, the network of churches that you're involved with, you know, here in Seattle, and, and just give your own opinion as well of, of what to do, what not to do, things like that. And I said, well, I'll poll. Let me, let me ask some of the, the leaders that we're networked with, with school church partnerships, you know. And so the overwhelming response that I got from about 20 pastors was like, hey, Roy, I think we should, you should write a letter. You should write about some of your, some of your opinions and our support. We wanted to, our support was for Dr. Nyland to be there, you know. And then they started, when, when the letter started, the email started coming back to me. Um, God bless them, okay. But some of the pastors were kind of like, Roy, you have to take a really hard line bent, and you have to talk about the number of people in your congregation, you know, all these voting numbers, all these voting people, right, who live in Seattle. And you need to, you need to do a lot of numbers and show the strength of, of, of what we believe in because these people could eventually vote people out. That's how you get a politician's attention, okay. So, so write an email like that. And... Um, <clears throat> Again, going reading through this passage and just kind of knowing how I despise politics and politics meaning being political and manipulating people in different ways. So in the end, <clears throat> just uh, just a few of you, you know, I wrote a letter and I wrote a letter to the school board, um, and I just talked about the school board. I just talked about how we how we love them. Uh, when do you get? When does a school board member get a letter like that? Right, <laughs> people, we love you, we love you, we pray for you. These are all true things, by the way. There's, some of you all know this, but there's a quarterly prayer meeting. There's a quarterly Seattle prayer meeting for the school district, the school board, and everyone. Happens once a quarter at Faith Bible Church downtown. I'm part of that. So we let them know we love them. We pray for them. We believe in them. And this was the whole thing. And we, we said, this, these are, and we said, these are our observations that we've seen. We, and we said, we're not political. We're not, I mean, we're not education experts. But this is what's troubling to us is that we see that there's a great disunity between the school teachers and principals and then the board for your next elected leader. This probably isn't the best environment to have. You should all kind of be like on the one same page, you know, to come together. Like this is the right time to, to hire someone at, as important position as that. And so we said, these are our recommendations. Not that you must do this. Sign Pastor Roy, network of, I don't know, 2,000 leaders or something like that. No. It was very, try to write a letter full of grace. Full of grace. Is that going to always change every, anything? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> you know, again, I don't have a lot of faith in politics sometimes, right? But I knew at least the way that Christians need to engage with our elected leaders needs to change from the past decade, from the past 15, past 20 years. Because what everyone's doing now is that everyone's just trying to have a voice. And before we would talk about a collective voice or everyone has a voice at the table when it comes to political issues, but in the last 10 years, you guys know, there is no table. The ta someone took a sledgehammer. Everyone took a sledgehammer to the table all the chairs are cast down to the side, no, and everyone's just going to fight for their own voice, and that's it. And so as Christians, we need to be involved in a different way. We need to be involved, but not political. And point number five is that Scripture, this is important, does not demonize politics. And Christian, uh, Scripture does not demonize politicians, and neither should we. It says this, that they are God's servant. 
they are God's servants. So we need to encourage them as God's servants. We need to encourage the best out of them. Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, also as a matter of conscience. Again, this is the way it should work when they are pursuing justice and truth, and that we should be encouraging our political leaders to pursue justice and truth. Now, again, you have to understand just a brief word of context, and I know usually I start with context and heavy in context at the beginning, but just a brief word of context for here. <clears throat> Paul is writing this. Paul lived at least under two Roman uh, emperors, okay? First one is Claudius, who expelled all the Christians out of Rome. The second one is Nero, and Nero would be the one who would ultimately execute Paul. Nero's the one where there was the most intense persecution. Where he'd, I mean, crazy things. He would, he would um, uh, sew up Christians in uh, animal, cloth, animal uh, skins, you know, throw them to the dogs and throw them to the lions. I mean, it was, it was just crazy. He would use Christians as basically torches, you know, to light up the night for his palace. These are all things that are that historically, that they're historically recorded. And this is the context in which Paul writes these verses. And so God has a very high view of who he's calling politicians to be. And whenever sometimes our Christian theology gets hijacked by a political ideology, it usually can be traced back to our identity. It usually can be traced back to something that we feel like we need to feel good about ourselves. I'm right. I'm on God's side. We need to kind of lay that down and say, God is the one who has truth. And God is calling me to love those and encourage those in high positions to also pursue truth and justice. And that's why Paul leaves it with this. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. We need to figure out how to love and support our politicians instead of demonizing them. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All right. So what if we kind of move forward from this conversation and say, well, I'm going to just kind of lay down my political ideology. And what I'm going to do pursue first is kingdom first, the idea of kingdom first, which is truth and justice first. And truth and justice are not just filled. They're, they're, they are not something that are just political facts or, or yeah, these just one-off objective, objective facts. But it's found in finding and discovering truth, which is not always easy. It's difficult. And what if Christians were known not for their political ideology, but our love for people in the government, our respect for them, our prayer for them, and our support for them? Because there's people here that, you know, there's some young people here, maybe perhaps, like you, you're thinking, like, this is the way you want to go. You want to be a politician. You know, and God is calling you to a really high, a really good, really great platform, a really great work to be God's servant in this world. And I do think we need more and more Christians to take those places, but we need those Christians who aren't going to tow a party line, but they're going to be first and foremost followers of Christ who seek truth and justice. 
before anything else. That would be what this world needs to further unite us and not divide us. Let's pray, go church. Father, thank you for this morning. And uh, I know for some of us, um, this really hits us if we're really into politics, uh, especially if we're really disturbed by politics. Some of us, a lot of us actually also may be very neutral and don't really see how this affects us in our daily life. But I pray that you would help us all to see that you are deeply involved in this area, that you are the highest authority, and that no matter when we see a lot of corruption or we see things that we don't like about politics that kind of turn us off, we can always know that you are the highest authority and you always remember and you are the great judge. And so we pray for our country and we pray for our president, God, that you would lead them, lead us into your truth and into your righteousness. And in all the ways that our system is broken and when so many of us get discouraged about it, help us to be people as Christians, to bring some healing to the process, to be a voice of civility, a voice of reason, a voice of kindness, a voice of grace in the midst of all of this. And help us, Father, especially maybe those who are particularly, I don't know, bitter about the subject and maybe are losing hope and, uh, I don't know, maybe think this is like a Bonhoeffer moment, (laughs) something like that. Um, Lord, I pray you bring healing and I pray that you bring hope because no matter who we elect, we only have one Messiah that we need. And we know you've already proven it, that you're the one. And so we place all of our hope and all of our faith in you. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And thank you for continuing to lead us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and sing together.